Welcome to the Brain Trust Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield. Whether you're a leader, a coach, a salesperson, or even a parent, this podcast focuses on how to leverage the science of decision-making to help you become a more impactful communicator and a driving force for change. Welcome back to the Driving Change Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Bloomfield, and I'm excited for today's episode for a couple of different reasons. What if I ask you if you would like to know the secret to longevity? I bet you'd be interested. And what if I also told you that there was a secret village in a remote province in China that held the key to longevity? Well, that's actually true. And on today's episode, I have a special treat for you. I'm actually not going to be your host. Today, Brain Trust President Dr. Dan Doherty was in Park City, Utah recently, where he had the opportunity to interview Dr. John Day and his wife, Jane. And they actually spent a significant amount of time in this remote village. In this remote village, per capita, has the most centenarians, people over 100 per capita, than nearly any other place on earth. And it's being studied now by plenty of, of people who are looking at why that happens. And Dr. John uh, is an actual cardiologist who you'll hear his story throughout the podcast episode. But I think what you're going to find in this episode is a lot of the things that we can do today that are being done by the people of this village and have been done by the people in this village for centuries, not just from a diet and exercise standpoint, but from a mindfulness standpoint as well. And I think you're going to love this episode. I think it's going to change the way you look at longevity forever. Enjoy. Dr. Dan, take it away. Okay. Good evening. I'm super excited to be in Park City, Utah and have the opportunity to interview Dr. John Day and his wife, Jane Day, who are the authors of The Longevity Plan. And for those of you that listen to our Driving Change podcast, you know that we are all about bringing messages and helping people figure out this, this complex world of how you impact change. And I want you guys to know before we even get started how much the book personally meant to me. So the long, at the end, when we talk about people getting where they can find your resources, the longevity plan for me was not only a tremendous read, but things that I could put into my life practice immediately. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you for going on the journey that you all did, which we want to unpack a little bit for our listeners. So thank you for being here. It's such a joy. I'm so glad it's meant something for you and it's helped you along your path. It's awesome. And welcome to Park City. Yeah. Yeah. So what you all don't know is we're on location. So we are sitting at 8,000 feet. The mountains are right behind us. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I'm going to call... I'm going to refer to John as John at this point, but tell me about skiing and all this. So if you all could see what I could see, absolutely beautiful. So let's start with this. So before we get to the book, can you unpack a little bit for our listeners the journey that you personally went on before the book was even something that, that you both conceived? Sure, absolutely. You know, and it happens to a lot of us. We hit about age 40 and things change. And I started to you start picking up more aches and pains. And in my case, there was acid reflux. There was high blood pressure. Cholesterol was up and autoimmune disease. And it's just one thing after another. And I just remember thinking, what happened? I, you know, I had great health and all of a sudden age 40 and everything falls apart. And as things got worse, it got to the point where even simple things like playing basketball with my kids just hurt. 
my job is one where I perform these complex operations wearing this lead suit and my neck and my back would just ache. And I, and I remember thinking, I'm only in my mid forties. What's, what's it going to be like when I'm in my mid fifties, my mid sixties. And I started thinking, boy, it was a good thing. I got that uh, disability insurance because I don't know that I'm going to be able to continue doing what I do as a physician, doing these operations, wearing these lead suits and surgery until it's time to retire. But I think even more is just not being able to play with the kids. And and it was really a wake-up call for me that something had to change. So when when you talk about change, there's the realization that something needed to change. And then all of a sudden you, something has, something has to happen. So in your book, you talk about tipping points and, and wake up calls. So even the conversation that you all may have had together, you know, what was it that then said, I'm going to make, not only make this change, but I'm going to, I'm going to do something about it. So what was that journey like? So I, th- I think the what really got me to where something had to change, as I mentioned, is not being able to play basketball with my kids without being in pain. And then the second is getting through my work day, my surgery schedule day. It's, and, and then coming up with these crazy ideas where I, they work out where I would sit on this chair and do these surgeries. But then things got even worse from there because then I was sitting all day. And so it was really, it was the pain. It was having your body in pain in your mid 40s it's not meant to be that way. And I can tell you um, in the mindset that we often are in, in our society, one of the first things John looked to change was maybe his diet. And he went thought, maybe I should go gluten-free. So, but within not too long, he found the gluten-free cookies and the gluten-free <laughs> brownies and breads and things. And, and he thought, you know, I've got to lose weight. Maybe I'll go gluten-free. So that's what we kind of start thinking first, how to go on a diet and lose weight. But he ended up, I think, gaining, was it five pounds on the gluten-free diet? It didn't it really get didn't me anywhere. really work. And there's, of course, the pharmaceutical path. Um, right. Taking a number of different medications. That's for the other common. Acid reflux. To. I had esophagitis for high blood pressure. You know, so and then you're taking all these pills and then you feel even worse. So the, the hard thing can be we want to change, but we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do to bring about change. And if you're in an environment where uh, the answers that people typically look to are medications or go on a diet or, you know, whatever kind, but you don't really have a kind of a paradigm shift of a whole different way of going about it. You can get really stuck in a spin. So in, in looking back at your story, so a practicing cardiologist, you, you are trained at one of the best universities in the country. So you're training at Johns Hopkins, you're out at Stanford, and you know you need to make this change, but that's, so you know all that, you have all this, this cerebral part, like, yeah, I know I need to make a change, but that's, that's a long, a big step from saying, yeah, I know that I need to make this change. But then you find yourself in China that leads you to the book and you're studying these people. So I want to take you back to there. Mm-hmm. So you're at this tipping point and you decide you're going to do something. And then, so when you think about the people of uh, Bama County, and you think about that journey, why then, why there? What was the conversation like between the two of you? Like, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna go to this rural village in China and we're gonna study these people that seem to be living longer 
And you're instead of just saying, yeah, I know I need to make a personal change, but you're going to go on a much bigger journey. I think for a lot of our listeners that feel like, well, I can't do this or I'm trapped in this. And you got you guys together broke through that mold. Tell us about that. And, and then when you got there, when you think about the people in China that you studied for years, what emotions come to you? What do you, you know, what, tell us about, tell us about that. Absolutely. And for those that, that know me, know that there's a Chinese side to me. I've been studying Chinese every day for the last 30 plus years of my life, 35 years of my life. I speak fluent Chinese and regularly travel to Asia. Uh, I've been in the leadership of a number of uh, medical societies and frequently asked to speak at, at China. And so traveling to China and speaking at these meetings, these medical conferences, being one of the uh, one and only non-Chinese that can give their entire presentation Q&A in Mandarin Chinese, it was a bit of a novelty. And so that's something I regularly traveled there. And in talking with my colleagues, I learned of this place in China, Bama County, that has the highest percentage of centenarians in the world. And so I started looking into these and the scientific side of me started digging into the studies that have been published on these people in the medical literature, also in the Chinese medical literature, reading these studies. But I think the thing that really drove me in, in wanting to learn more is these are people Basically, they're outliers. What is their secret sauce to try to deconstruct? What is something different about them? How were they able to escape everything that I was experiencing? And it wasn't just me. I have a large medical cardiac practice, cardiology practice. I've got thousands of patients, and they're all suffering from the same things as premature aging that we experience here in the West. What are they doing different? And that was something that was very fascinating to me, but I don't know that we would have gone on this journey had Jane not have uh, pushed us to go that way. That's my passion. <laughs> so, <laughs> so tell us about that. I, well, I lived in Egypt for a year when I was 16 alone. I left my family, went and lived with an Egyptian Muslim family, and that kind of started my whole interest and then have lived abroad and taught Arabic and um, done different things. So I love travel. John, not so much. So I remember that night, he also usually likes to go to bed early. So, but that night he had that um, Skype at the time call uh, where his colleague said, yeah, I just saw this thing about his, he's like practicing his Chinese and saying, but my body's aching and I'm having this and that. And she said, I just saw this thing on TV about this longevity village. She's in China and so we start researching it that night. We didn't go to bed and we start looking it up, trying to figure it out. And I'm like, John, we have to go. We have to go. So I think one of the things as I listen to John talking that might be important to point out um, for our listeners is that we had a big question in our mind whether this was genetic or lifestyle. And that the answer to that question is huge because if it's all genetic, then what can we point to for hope? But what we did learn and we did genetic testing with these centenarians is that they carry all the same kinds of genes that we do. They just weren't turning on the dementia, the heart disease, whatever, because of their lifestyle choices. And so that brings great hope. So the big driver for going to this place was this hope of this other way. How is it that they are aging so differently than we are here in our society and our whole paradigm? Everybody kind of has this paradigm of how aging looks. 
and it doesn't have to be that way. And so that hope of another way. And so we had to go and find out and come to find that it was lifestyle. And I won't say choices because they didn't really consciously choose these lifestyle um, factors because they were forced to go out and work in the fields so that they wouldn't starve and eat vegetables because that's what they (laughs) could produce. And being in a community, of course, they did have choice to build community. And that was a big part of their longevity was showing up for each other and their continued purpose as they aged, which is something we often lose here. So we found kind of seven principles overall that um, are factors that are truly uh, uh, available to any of us to choose. And it's just a matter of being intentional because our society tends to want to draw us towards the conveniences and comforts, which ironically produce inconvenience and discomfort ultimately. And so it's just being mindful and making those daily little tiny shifts in, in these areas where um, we can experience something completely differently uh, right here in this same culture. So the seven principles, there was one, one so let's kind of walk through a couple of these. So there was, there was one principle, like right at the beginning, you know, is, is eat good food. You know, and I read that as like, eat good food. Okay. I'm a fairly educated person. I should eat good food. And then you coined to me, you said, real food first diet. And so for people that are thinking about the way they eat, for anybody listening to us today, and again, this being a driving change podcast, what would you say to them when it comes to this, this there's all this information about food and making the right choices and all this, but what would you say to them about how do you do real food and make that the first thing you do? What would be your guidance for them? You know, it all starts with what we eat. Um, and some, and there's a lot of misunderstanding there. Too often we want to look to labels, but what's healthy, what we're supposed to eat. But if your food has a label on it, it's probably not the food you should be eating. When we're talking real food, we're talking about food that doesn't come with a label, doesn't come in a box, doesn't come in a jar, doesn't come from a fast food place. We're talking real natural food. Um, and then eating it in a way that is able to uh, bring out the health healing properties. As it was said so many uh, millennia ago, let food be your medicine. Our body naturally wants to heal. And too often we're thwarting it by what we are eating. Going back, eating real food, the stuff that comes in different colors, it's that you, it's usually on the on the ends of at the at the supermarket or a local market, or even better, a local farm. Getting it as fresh as you can, as close to the source that hasn't been processed in the many ways that our foods now have been changed. Going back to maybe how your ancestors used to eat, and, and you'd have to go back a number of generations now going back to what's real and then allowing that food to heal us. So if I were going to leave here today and 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 I'm traveling and all the things that I do for work and life is real fast. And I'm like, how do I take the principles that you're just talking about eating the right foods, shopping at the right parts of the supermarket, trying to get food as fresh as it can be from wherever it's original source is onto my table if there was like a couple of practical things, like when you're working with your patients in your clinic and you, you get in this big topic about food, you know, how do you translate what you learned in China, what you've done for yourself, 
and what you do in practice into a couple of things that people can say, yeah, I, I can start with that today. And it doesn't seem so big, John, that they're like, mm, I can't do it. You know, I, I just, and they, and they go right back to their old habits. And I get it. I get it. I, I'm a busy cardiologist. Do I sit and spend an hour every morning preparing all of my meals and take them into the hospital each day? No, I, mean, I do the best that I can. And I think there's some, just a few things if people can just nail down on some of these basics, you know, you're 90% of the way there. I'd say first, when it comes to vegetables, whatever vegetables you're eating, and hopefully you're eating some, triple, <laughs> um, eat as many as you can, triple, triple your vegetables. Uh, second, if you can avoid added sugars. And I'm always saying, well, what about fruit? What I'm talking about added sugars. If you can avoid added sugars and then avoid processed foods to the extent that you can. I'm in a hospital, so I have a salad every day. Um, there may be some other vegetable choices. Um, and so that becomes what I try to do is I try to eat as many of these vegetables as I can and avoid any processed pr prepared foods the as, as the best I can. I'm in a hospital cafeteria. It's not perfect. I do the best I can. And I can get a wide selection of, of vegetables, even in a hospital cafeteria each day. Okay, Dan, here it is. The question to ask before what to eat is why? So why do I want to change? Why does it matter to me? You've got to figure out your purpose and what is driving your desire for change, if any of this is going to stick. Um, we did put our first chapter as eat good food, and we really wrestled with this because it's not the first step. You don't just start, but it's where people start. They say, what should I eat? And that's the first thing on their mind. So this draws them in. But I would say before you ask, what should I eat and how should I prepare it is, why do I even care? What do I care about in my life? Why do I want to be well? What am I living for? What do I want the energy for? Do I want to show up for my kids, my grandkids? Um, do I love my work? Do I want to have energy for my work? I will tell you that I have battled with food for as long as I can remember. Um, sugar, white flour, um, emotional eating. And so I go to those things to try to it's like what I found kind of makes me feel just a little bit better, like for one second, which is such a waste because you're going to go to something. You should find something a little better than food to try to alter your mind state. But anyway, food's been a battle for emotional eating for me. So when I try to give up sugar or white flour, which I know aren't good for me and don't serve me, and then they just create more cravings and, and then I want to eat that. And then it kind of drowns out the vegetables and it kind of takes on a life of its own. I was on and off a lot until I connected with this purpose that was so solid that there was no question. And it took the debate out of any time I was to make a choice, it took the debate out. And that was when a child was struggling. And I decided to do this for this child primarily um, in a way it was, it was kind of a kind of along a spiritual lines of making a sacrifice and, you know, kind of an offering kind of thing and asking, you know, God, what can I do? What, what can I give? What can I share? And it kind of, I kind of came to this place that it would be beneficial for me, beneficial for him. So it was no question. It was, there was never a temptation. Things were around me all the time, but my why was solid. And so I was able to successfully achieve um, sustained desired change, which is what we're ultimately after, but it has to start with the purpose. Okay. I love it. So, so we, 
we train a lot of people on their why, you know, and kind of digging in a little bit deep to kind of figure out your why. Because, you know, we firmly believe in the things that we teach is that that helps drive, as you're saying, Jane, to sustain change. So, and since you said the word, when you guys think of sustained change and kind of a purpose even behind the book and the people, whether in, in your profession or um, in any other setting in, in life, your family, what does sustained change mean to you guys? So that's a, that's a good question. And that's something as a physician I, I deal with, not only with myself and our family, but it's also with my patients because 80% of my patients in cardiology wouldn't be my patients if they followed everything in that book. I mean, yeah, there's always some that are gonna have genetic factors. And one thing that Jane had brought up, and as I gave a lot of lectures or read talks on the book around the world, I was often asked, or, oh, they must have so much willpower. I can't do that. You know, that's great for those people in China, but what about me? And, and we showed, and we took a group of patients who had abused their bodies their entire lives. They were suffering from end-stage cardiac disease. And we were able to take this group on a multi-month journey and one by one, getting them off their medications, reversing their cardiovascular disease, reversing diabetes, reversing whatever. And we showed that it was entirely possible to make this change at whatever age, whatever position, whatever situation they got themselves into. And in my mind, as I view change, I really view it as three things. Jane touched on the first, purpose. You've got to have a reason. For most of my patients, if they're younger, it's to see their children, to be around for their children, to not die young. If they're older, maybe it's to be there for their family. And usually it comes back to family, being there, being around, guiding. After, once you have your why, once you have your purpose, then it comes into the second area is environmental programming. And that's what we learned from this book. These people lived incredibly healthy lives. The highest percentage of centenarians in the world, it wasn't by choice. They weren't making conscious choices each morning. Should I have the muffin or should I have vegetables for breakfast? Um, they didn't have a choice. Mm. Everything that was there was they're forcing them to make the right choices. And that's the same thing with us. Willpower will only get you so far. Um, if you want to make a change in food, probably the first thing you need to do is get rid of all the junk food in your house. Because as long as that junk food is there, at some point, you're going to hit a moment of weakness and you're going to binge eat everything in your house. So it's in changing your environment in a way where willpower is no longer needed. That's so good. So I hear a couple of things. First of all, it's never too late. Yeah. And if, and if anybody listening to this knows that it's never too late, you know, um, to take a different step in the journey, I think that's, that's so important. Second thing I heard in there, and it kind of leads into another principle in the book on mindset, mm -hmm. you know, and you wrote in the book about simplifying life and, and you kind of wrote about it in your own journey right. of, of simplifying life. And I was really struck by, you know, um, you wrote in there that when outside of your kind of work family responsibilities, that you would have a list of three things, you know, and you, and you try to simplify and life moves so fast and there's so much environmentally around us. 
can we talk a little bit about that mindset? Cause I, I want to go mindset into purpose because I, you know, cause you kind of end, you know, on, 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 on the purpose, you know? Mm-hmm. So, which I think is so critical as you were saying, Jane. So tell me a little bit about that concept of simplifying life and what that means to you guys and how can our listeners really take a second to hit the pause button and say, what does simplifying life really mean? That's hard uh, because as humans, we like to make things complex. We like to keep adding, adding in additional layers. But I think simplifying really gets down to what is most important and then putting first things first. You know, whether you're an 80-20 person or, or whatever, wherever you're coming from, is, is to really focus on the vital few things. And it's hard. As a parent, our children get in so many activities and we feel like a taxi cab driver. You know, you're, you're working hard and then you spend your evening shuttling kids around. But to try to focus on what is most important, what is most important to you. And I think for most people, when you get down to it, um, there may be a few things that are really most important that drive that family relationships with people, whether it's relationships at work, relationships at home. Um, There may be a sense of personal happiness of of what drives them and focusing on those vital few. Jane? Yeah. So once you have in mind what you care about most, that's not, it's not far enough. That doesn't take you far enough. You have to actually know then what to do to uh, manifest that in your life and to drop the things that you care about less. So you do have to practice saying no. You have to learn to exercise a different muscle. It's going to feel very uncomfortable, especially if you are very much wanting to take care of others and their feelings and their needs. And um, you, you have to really learn how to say no and sit with the discomfort And then the other thing that maybe will feel a little bit better um, and to kind of open your mind to the possibility of outsourcing. So give yourself permission to bring other people into your life to play the roles that maybe you're not so good at. Um, Wouldn't it be lovely to have someone come in and do your laundry for you or, you know, to do some cleaning once in a while? Um, And Truly, I believe, and if you have children, especially, it was very hard for me to think about bringing somebody else in to play a role, but somebody put it this way to me, and this is a Harvard Business School professor and, and a, a faithful, he is somebody who's following God and trying to live a spiritual life, and he said, look, um, you're good at some things, and you're less good at other things. Other people have tremendous talents and strengths that they can bring in and bless your family. So bring them in, allow them to come in and be a part of your ecosystem and your, your group. So I would say, and there are a lot of great tools to learn how to say no and um, a lot of great resources that you can bring in to take on other roles so that you can, once you define clearly what you um, care about most, that you can now execute on that and implement that and make it a reality in your life. So do you guys think, I love that. So do you guys think that, you know, cause you also talk about positive community. That's another one of the, one of the principles. And, you know, um, you wrote about this four step process of change, which I, I when I was reading, I really kind of stepped back and, you know, you said, and I, I, I'm going to paraphrase here. Okay. But you said, describe the change, then explain why, 
and don't expect the others that you share it with to necessarily change with you. Absolutely. And then recruit support. And then recruit support. Yeah. You know, because it, you know, when we were talking about sustained change earlier, not everybody's got to come along with you in the exact same and they journey. Won't. Sometimes but it's threatening a, for them. Right. But that support piece yeah. is so critical. It so is. if I have it in my own mind that I'm going to make a change and I recruit people around me for that accountability, yes. you know, you, cause you link that in the chapter about loneliness and, you know, for the last eight months that we've all been living through in this year, of crazy 2020, We've got this major issue. It's getting worse. This whole issue of, of loneliness. I got to take all this on myself. And yeah. I think when you start to put these principles together mm-hmm. is when the narrative really started to come out for me, even personally as a coach, Yeah, you know, it's like, okay, I know I got to eat right. And if I've got the right mindset and I'm in a positive community and you know, that I just think is so important. People listening yeah. is there's be this complicated change process, but don't forget about bringing people along with you. Yeah. Absolutely. And if I could make a point on that is, too often, at least with health, when people think about change, they think, I got to eat right and start exercising. But we also talk in the book, and you brought it in as social isolation. And there are data, at least when it comes to longevity, life expectancy, healthy life years, that social isolation is a bigger risk factor than either obesity or smoking. And you talked about the accountability piece. You have to have that with change. You have your purpose. you and do environmental programming the best you can to minimize uh, distractions on your willpower, but you've got to have that social piece, that accountability piece to have lasting change. Jane, you had a comment? Yeah, I think um, studying the people who have what you want. Um, So this whole book is about a whole different paradigm. It's another way. It's another way of aging that we don't see here. Um, it exists, but you don't see it. It's not the visual that we have of aging in our society. Um, and there's another way. Know that there's another way. So there's a proximity principle. So when you identify what you want, then start finding the people who have that, study how they're getting there, and get close to them and bring them into your life. And um, of course, the studies we're all very familiar about with the social network and you're most like the five people closest to you. I mean, it's very, very true. Um, We're studying right now in our program about how obesity is contagious and and there's data behind that. It's it's a social disease in in a way. So um, surround yourself with the people that have what you want and study them and learn and just know that there's always another way to look at it, another way to approach it. and to connect with that and make that a reality that way. That's awesome. Now I know we're coming up on 30 minutes already. So I've got to put this one in here because I, I, I wrote it down. So in your find your rhythm as a cardiologist, yes. um, I read this one to my wife, you know, so the people of Papan. So you said hearts are in rhythm and they balance their, their, because they balance their lives are in rhythm. And I thought that concept of having balance in your life in rhythm is what keeps their hearts in rhythm. And as a cardiologist, as a practicing cardiologist, that like really struck a chord with me. You know, so maybe could you talk just for a minute about that concept of, of, of balance? Like, so I almost envision you guys walking across that bridge and going into the village and you're sitting with those centenarians like face to face, like we are right now, six feet apart, by the way, <laughs> but, we're, but you're sitting there with them and, and you could, I, I could almost sense, John, you could feel you know, that, that connection, what you described in that chapter. Could you share a little bit about that? Sure. 
as a cardiologist, I actually specialize in arrhythmias. And so my whole practice is keeping people's hearts in rhythm. And what I found over time is almost every case, when one of my patients, when their heart is out of rhythm, when they're having arrhythmias, there's usually 99% of the time, there's something in their life that is also out of rhythm, out of balance as well. And there are a lot of ways of looking at this from a health standpoint. We talk, there's circadian rhythm. Um, eating or going to bed and rising at the same time. There's mounds of data that people that work night shifts, travel a lot, disrupts their health. But having that rhythm, meal timing, um, and also having a rhythm, a time and a place, connecting with family. There's, there's keeping your life in rhythm, I found helps to keep your heart in rhythm and helps to keep disease away. Jane? I just would love to add the um, element of nature. Nature is in perfect rhythm. You live in it. We live in it. Yeah. So it's beautiful around us here. So if we're very disconnected often from nature, we're in buildings, we, we hop in our car, we push a button, garage door goes up, we drive out, you know, drive down the road to this gym, stand in front of a mirror with some machines. And um, we, we, we have a setup that's very disconnected. So we have to be intentional about reconnecting with nature as we spend time there um, and get in touch with the rhythms. You know, one is the rhythm of the sun, sun up and sun down and and honoring that rhythm. Um, And when we do intentionally seek to understand and align ourselves with natural rhythm, things, things fall into place for us. You know, there's so much we, and I'm going to really encourage everybody here at the end uh, on where to direct them, where they can get the book and learn more. So we're going to get to that in just a minute because there's so much in there about that you guys wrote about relative to lack of sleep and, you know, being burned out and, you know, this, um, this kind of crazy life that we live that the whole issue with multitasking, you know, and just adding and adding and adding to all these things that are barriers to really kind of living out uh, the longevity plan in its fullest. But so I want people to go and read about that because the way you talk about noise and how cluttered things are, and it's very hard to find those moments unless you're literally in nature that we can separate ourselves sometimes from what we need to do that fulfills our entire kind of aspects of well-being. So, and let me just say, stress is not to be avoided. It can actually work to our benefit. So work with stress, learn from stress, leverage stress. And who's the gal out of Stanford that talks about turning stress to your advantage? I might be able to look it up before the end. Well, there's a difference between you stress and distress. And too often it's distress, but you stress can be very powerful. It's like exercise. You've got to push your body to achieve that benefit. Um, And stress isn't to be avoided. It's part of life. But I love it though, because what I love in the book and people will read this, people will read this is that, you know, and from a cardiologist perspective, and for those of you that don't know, Jane and I actually, you know, studying for our doctoral work in the same university. And so when you dig into this stuff, you, you realize that, yeah, stress, stress, certain levels of stress can be okay. But when stress hits, it releases different chemicals in our body, it releases, it triggers different systems. And that persistent stress, you know, leads to outcomes like blood pressure issues and heart rate issues and all these things that 
we can't get off this stress cycle, this wheel, you know? And I, what I found John is these principles is that if people take a step back and start to say, how can I apply these in my life? You know, they can, they can put things into these chapters and, and, and make change like not a month from now, but like tomorrow morning, which is why I want to come all the way out to Utah to talk to you guys. So um, Jane, I, you're say? I would just love to share with our listeners because this Kelly McGonigal, um, she talks about embracing stress. That's more important than reducing stress. And that her research is indicating that stress can make us stronger and smarter and happier if we learn how to open our minds to it which when I came across her work was a big relief to me because it's so stressful trying to figure out how to reduce stress. You know, we've always heard like eliminate stress, eliminate. It's like, oh my gosh, I'm so stressed. I can't eliminate this stress. Something must be going wrong. So to just, again, a paradigm shift, just like what we're offering in our book is a complete paradigm shift on things. And just always know there's a completely different way to look at something. Um, But this is one wonderful study that she did and she has a book out on that that you can find and benefit from. Yeah. So let's let's close with this one. So let's go back to purpose for a second. And you all shared in there that focusing on the future is the important part of purpose. Now some of the people that Jane and I train under in our program, you know, will refer to that as, you know, kind of your ideal self. And your ideal self is that person that who you want to be. And not losing sight of your dreams and your vision and your passions and your purpose. You know, and I found a real link, a a link to that. So I don't know if you have a comment on that, on that, you know, for our listeners, I'm focusing on the future, you know, and how much hope that can trigger and optimism. You know, I found that quite striking in the book. Yeah, I was going to say the key there is the hope because there's that, um, like we're talking about, it's never too late to make changes and there's always another way. And those are kind of the two basic messages of the book and they lead to hope. And so when we kind of look around us, things can feel a little overwhelming and um, kind of stagnant and closing in and, and maybe not seeing options. But when you can get yourself to the place where you can look ahead and give yourself permission to envision, well, what would the ideal look like? Not what does it look like now and what are my limitations right now, but what would the ideal look like? Give yourself permission to dream so you even have a connection with what you want to work toward. And then you can start taking steps towards that. But if you start with the how, um, like, how am I going to do this um, without the ideal vision in mind? It's going to be really hard. You're going to get tripped up and paralyzed. So that's, I think, the importance of being able to envision what's ahead. And then you you give yourself the space to move into that. I think from my standpoint, more of a health perspective, uh, I often start my lecture, my talks as I'm speaking on this. Ask the audience, how many of you want to live to 100? Maybe there are one or two hands that go up. The rest... No, it's, it's, it's almost, I do not want to. It's like, shoot me before I get old. And we've almost created a nocebo effect. We all know about placebo, where you think you're going to get better and you actually do. Nocebo, we've almost changed our view towards life and aging to a nocebo effect. We expect to be senile, uh, to be physically disabled, and all of these problems as we get older, and it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. This book challenges a lot of that. Having that purpose, study after study has shown that people with purpose can avoid cardiovascular disease, 
decrease rates of cancer, dementia, etc., because it changes our individual day-to-day decisions, having that out and in front of us. And that's one message of the book is we all, unless you have the worst genes in the world, you, with the right choices, you can enjoy exceptional health until about age 90. And if you're lucky, maybe you can get to 100. I know for me, my vision is I want to be skiing with my family, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, my great-great-grandkids on my 100th birthday. And that is the vision that I want, is to have that close family and to be there for them and the physical wherewithal that I can ski on my 100th birthday. You know, I love that, John. I'm going to give you the last word here because you opened with your why and you kind of just closed with your why. You know, and one of the things that I think it seemed in the book you asked yourself was, was this book part of your purpose before you ever went on this journey of writing it? And it seemed very clear that it is, you know, so where do you, where do you want this to go? If you have one, one kind of message in the book to tie all these principles together. So our listeners out there says, I'm going to, I want to, I want to learn something from this. What's kind of like your, your overall umbrella message that, that came out of this whole journey for you? I think the biggest thing, and it's something that I've applied to my medical practice as well, is it's never too late to change. I see new patients in their 60s, 70s, 80s, severe cardiovascular disease. But if they're willing to do the work, to apply the principles of the book, in many cases, they can reverse or at least halt the progression, some sort of very significant benefit or change. And you can apply that to any part of life. It's never too late to change. Whatever position you may find yourself in, whatever difficult situation, whether it's in work, family, your health, change is always possible. I love it. I love it. So where, where can our listeners find the book? First of all, the book can be found on about every, any platform. If you're an audible person, if you're a Kindle person, hardcover, softcover, it, uh, you know, I don't know whether your local bookstores are still open now, um, but certainly Amazon is a great or any online platform in this COVID era is great. Uh, you're also welcome to come to my website, drjohnday.com. There, there's a number of blogs and a newsletter and other areas where you can learn more about many of the things that we've discussed today. Outstanding. So drjohnday.com. And they can also go on to Amazon. The book is called The Longevity Plan. And on behalf of Jeff Bloomfield and myself, I sincerely want to thank you both for allowing me to come into your home in beautiful Park City, Utah. And uh, I really encourage our listeners to go out and, and, and read the book. It will make a difference. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for coming. Hey friends, this is Jim Knight, former 21-year Hard Rock executive turned best-selling author and top 10 keynote speaker. And I'm Brant Menzoir, former frontman of Hollywood's most dangerous band turned top 10 motivational speaker and best-selling author. We host the how-to podcast, Thoughts That Rock, where we talk to rock stars, athletes, CEOs, astronauts, and even next door neighbors who share their expertise and opinions. Together, we tackle the most interesting and challenging topics of today. Whether you wanna learn how to become more confident, how to deal with anxiety at work, or how to write a hit song, 
or use Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu in life. We've got hundreds of episodes to help amp up your life and move you forward. Subscribe to Thoughts That Rock wherever you listen to podcasts and check out evergreenpodcast.com for more information.